right. Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you uh, again for, for coming out tonight. And uh, with the topics we've been dealing with this summer, I didn't know if it would just be Greg and I left here on this week or not, but thank you for, for coming out and for caring about these important and uh, controversial issues. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and uh, open up to the book of Leviticus. We'll just have Leviticus 18 handy. And Greg, can you pray for us? And then just before Greg prays, just if you're, if you're visiting or new or, and, and you just want to kind of figure out where we are. So we spent the first couple weeks of the summer on Thursday nights dealing with uh, some social justice issues, including critical theory and critical race theory. And uh, we, we talked about how uh, there's an unhealthy view, especially with the issue of racism, of how things are being approached. Uh, what is not real racism is being named and labeled racism, and we talked through that. Uh, this is now the third week on the topic of LGBTQ plus issues and the sexual revolution, as it has been called really since the 1960s. <clears throat> Our goal has been to do two things, and we hope to do more of that tonight. Our goal has been to explain the secular narrative of how we got to where we are. Things don't just come out of nowhere, they, they develop over time. Popular philosophers and speakers will write books that, you know, these, we're talking about books that almost nobody reads. We're talking about these thousand-page books that almost nobody reads, but certain people do read them. And intellectuals and especially influencers will read these people. Professors will read these people, and they'll teach it to their students in a more understandable way. As time goes forward, those ideas that started in these massive philosophical books end up in songs on the radio. They end up in sitcoms as a punchline and a joke. They end up in commercials, literally, they end up being the narrative of a commercial that you'll see about what love is, about what unity is supposed to look like, all these things. And so, although many of us will not sit down in our life and ever read uh, complete works of Sigmund Freud, okay, uh, we're probably not going to do that. We, we often don't realize how much people like that have influenced the cultural air that we breathe in our society today. And uh, what basically happens that we've been arguing is that our intuitions, our imagination, our sense of what is right and wrong, what is fitting and not fitting, what is absurd and what is normal, what is laughable and what is bigoted, all those kinds of things. We often don't think about it from first principles logically and argue all the way from first principles to conclusions about marriage or gender or sexuality. Often what? If you're in the 90s, I think the, the sitcom, I, I'm going to let you pray, I'm sorry, just, the sitcom in the 90s, Will and Grace, you, now I never even watched Will and Grace hardly at all, but you, you know, if you, may, you may remember the show Will and Grace. In the 90s, the show Will and Grace had a classic uh, gay couple or gay character in it, and uh, Carl Truman says he thinks that shows like that have done more to influence the way we think about things based on the way the characters are portrayed in the show than anybody ever did reading some philosophical book that's dusty on a shelf. So what starts as philosophy? philosophy turns into what professors teach in college, it bleeds into what students take away, and then it bleeds into what the culture teaches through many different avenues, and eventually what happens? Our intuitions, our senses of right and wrong and good and bad are deeply shaped by these things that oftentimes we haven't thought through logically, and so we have very strong instincts and emotions that oftentimes we don't examine, and so our goal has been to stop and examine why the culture is where it is, why we assume Certain things are true and certain things are not, and that's what we want, 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 want to unpack more of, and also putting alongside that the biblical storyline and the biblical narrative and the biblical perspective, and putting these two things side by side so we can contrast them, so we can see them both clearly, and maybe most importantly, so we can recognize when something is from the one narrative or when it's from the other narrative in our everyday life. Uh, and so, uh, that, that's kind of the goal of what, what we're doing, and this will be our last week uh, on, on the topic of the sexual revolution.
Well, let's pray. God, uh, we thank you so much, um, Lord, that you've given us a church that is concerned about your truth, concerned about applying your word, Lord, uh, to all manner of situations and submitting to the authority of your word overall. God, that's what we want to do tonight uh, more than anything. We want to be faithful uh, handlers of the scriptures. Uh, Lord, up here as we're teaching and for everyone listening, God, your word is our authority. Lord, and we want to believe it. We want to embrace it. And we pray you'll help us understand it uh, better. God, uh, help Mark and me right now. Uh, Lord, we need your help so much to be faithful to your word on these very important issues uh, dealing with gender and sexuality and other things. Um, Lord, give us grace to be humble and yet uh, filled with conviction of your truth, uh, unflinching in that. And Lord, I pray that as a, a church, we would be better equipped through this time to think about what's going on in our world, interpret it rightly, respond rightly, and be able to better share the gospel, Lord, with the people we come in contact with who are so influenced by uh, the things that we're looking at. So Lord, we just commit this time to you, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us in every way that we need and empower us to better live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I thought I would spend the first few minutes kind of reviewing and bringing together what we've talked about the last two weeks and maybe adding a few new comments as well. These things come at you and come at me very quickly, and it's hard sometimes to, to grasp and hold on to some of these things. So let me try to tie together the last two weeks and, and put it all kind of right in front of us or try to do that uh, right now. So th there's something called some philosophers, theologians have called these things defeater beliefs, defeater beliefs. And what these basically refer to are the things we've been discussing. These are assumptions held in the culture that make Christianity look implausible on the face of it. So when someone says there's only one way to God, and that's Jesus Christ, in our culture people go, that just can't be true. That, that, you know, the reflexive response, of that, that, that we all know that there are many paths. We all know everyone has their own truth. Now, that would be an example of a defeater belief. There's a, there's a quiet belief held in the heart that, that everyone has their own path, their own truth. And so, when you bring in, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, people immediately go, ah, that's not what Jesus meant. That's got to be a bad translation. Surely, that's not what He was saying. That, that's the reflexive response, a defeater belief. And so, what we're trying to do is dig under the surface of these defeater beliefs, and another one would be obviously today, anyone who says that consenting adults who love each other cannot express that in a sexual relationship and, and find that fulfilling and good, anyone who says that, that there are limits and parameters to that and that you can't just everyone do what's right in their own eyes, it's immediately thought of as obviously wrong. And so we're trying to, again, dig under the surface and expose these beliefs and to try to counter them. So I mentioned two weeks ago that the, in the late 1700s, early, 1900s, early 1800s, the Romantics were the people who said, really in response to some Enlightenment beliefs and rationality, modernism, they, they said, listen, we, we need to look within, and we need to find the true self, and we need to express it. And it's not always wrong to, you know, express something that may be within you, but this became a commitment of what becomes today expressive individualism, where you look within, you find what's there, and you live it out. And I just have to mention something I did not say earlier. Uh, one pastor has pointed out uh, five problems on its own, on the face of it, with expressive individualism, that you look within and you express publicly what you see inside to find your true self. Just real quick, we could do a whole talk on this, but number one, our own deepest desires are oftentimes incoherent. In other words, 
You may want to have complete freedom, which you could have as a single person, but you may also want the commitment and the love of marriage and family, but guess what? You cannot have both of those two things. If you want the complete freedom, well, then you, you can have that option. If you want the, the, the relationship of the marriage and the family, you can choose that. But you can't have the freedom of singleness and the joys and privileges of marriage and family at the same time because these are automatically contradictory. So our deepest desires are oftentimes in conflict with each other. Number two, our deepest desires are also unstable. You know, the joke is you look back at, your, you know, if you're 20 years old, you look back at your 15-year-old self and you say, that person was embarrassing. And then, you, you know, if you're, if you're 30, you look back at your 20-year-old self and you go, what was I thinking? And when you're apparently, I'm not there yet, but when you're 45, 50, you look back at someone my age and you go, they didn't know what they were doing. And it keeps going. And so what happens is over time, our deep desires and things change within us. There's a famous quote of a man who said, my wife has been married to six men. All of them are me. I've changed so much since we got married. And so my passions and my hobbies and my loves have altered over the last five decades. She's really been married to six different men in many ways because of, of how unstable our deep desires can be. Number three, our deepest desires looking within can be crushing. Why? Because if you're trying to achieve an identity through accomplishment, you look within, you, you, you try to live out and, and achieve something, you try to win an award, you try to do something, you try to be the best at something, it is crushing because the pressure it places on you to try to find yourself and, and, and achieve this great identity, it is crushing because guess what? You can't really do it. And even if you think you do it, what, what's going to happen? You're going to need to do something else tomorrow to make you feel still like you matter. I mean, not to date this, this is from the late 80s. Madonna, you haven't heard her name in a while, perhaps. Madonna said in the late 80s that she said, you know, I, every time I achieve some great moment in pop culture, I feel like I've become something. I'm this beautiful, incredible person. And then she says, I wake up the next morning and what? I have to find something else to, do, to achieve it all over again. So it, it's a never stopping, crushing sort of thing. Number four, to, to look within and live out your inward desires is ultimately excluding. It is excluding. Why? This group claims to be inclusive, but why is it exclusive? Well, if you, if you find your identity in being the best singer around, what do you have to do? You have to look at every other singer and say, I'm better than them. That's how you get your sense of identity, right? If you're worse than everybody you know as a singer, how are you going to find your identity in that? And so the way you find your identity is by really, it's exclusive. You, 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 C.S. Lewis said, we don't find pride in having money. We find pride in having more money than someone else. We don't find pride in being beautiful. We find pride in being more beautiful than someone else. It's by excluding and comparing others that we try to find ourselves. So this, this version of identity is exclusive. And then, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's an illusion. Remember the Anglo-Saxon warrior? I won't tell the illustration again. But my point there was the culture tells you which desires within you can be validly truly you. Remember a thousand years ago, aggression was, not, was truly you. Same-sex attraction, not truly you today. Same-sex attraction is truly you. Aggression is not truly you. The culture tells you which desires can be truly you and which ones you have to get rid of and squelch. That is an illusion that we are actually just being true to whatever is within us. We're actually being highly selective. So, the Karl Marx then tells us to view the world through oppression and oppressed uh, lenses and categories. Charles Darwin says that we have no ultimate purpose. We're not trying to conform ourselves to something God has given us. We're trying to just simply kind of make it on our own. Sigmund Freud says our sexual desires are the most important thing about who we are. The new left of the 1930s to 60s, they say that oppression is primarily about sexual repression, as in anyone who tells you not to act on your inward impulses is repressing and actually oppressing you. They are actually an enemy to who you are. And then from the 60s on to today, you have what is called the sexual revolution, which wasn't 
This is not loosening the moral guidelines that have been around. This is an overturning of the previous moral guidelines. It is not that things are just a little bit more licentious or a little bit more allowable. It's rather that anything that impedes upon my sexual license is something an enemy to me that must be, that must be overturned. So, I guess we, with some of those thoughts we can jump in uh, to tonight, the biblical perspective. From the biblical perspective, I guess really you could boil the whole thing down to these two statements. Does our ultimate purpose and authority come from above us or does it come from within us? Those are the two narratives. Either your ultimate sense of self and purpose is something you invent for yourself out of your own heart and try to live it out consistently, or it is something that you look above and see God and His purpose and His law and His will, and then we conform ourselves to what He has called us to be. So, which is the true you? Is the true you, the authentic you, the you who looks within and authentically lives out your inward impulses and desires, or is the true you looking up to God who made you, seeing His design and law and purpose for your life? repressing, suppressing, putting to death sinful impulses, and submitting myself to His calling on my life, is that the true me? Is that the, is that the me I was created to be? Which of those two narratives ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, holds authority uh, for us? Uh, that's a decision we all have to make, somewhere we have to come uh, in this belief system. So, when you look to uh, Genesis 1 and 2, we looked at how God made Adam and Eve, male and female. That's what marriage and sexuality was for. Uh, we want to talk about Ephesians 5 as well tonight a little bit, how it's meant to reflect Christ in the church. Just mention this real quick. Uh, we know this probably. If the purpose of marriage is to reflect the gospel, the husband is meant to reflect Christ's sacrificial leadership for the church, the bride is meant to show the submission of the church for Christ, if that's what marriage is for ultimately not ultimately about my personal happiness. It's ultimately about showing the world the gospel. If that's true, then there has to be a husband, a male representing Christ, and a bride, the, the woman representing the church. And that's why gender is an essential component to marriage biblically. One person is reflecting the, the Christ, one the church. If you try to get rid of the male-female and you have two men or two women, it is not possible to reflect Christ in the church the way God has called us to in that way. So again, which narrative on these issues will we buy into is, is our big question. And I guess, anything, Greg, before we jump in further? You covered everything I wanted to say, so <laughs> you, where do you want to go? Okay, so we'll jump into some stuff we have not covered at all, which is in Leviticus chapter 18. And well, as we're looking at that, let, yeah. me, let me say this. Um, we're going to look at some text tonight. Uh, Leviticus, you know, it's easy to, to pounce on Leviticus. A lot of people say, well, and we, I think we mentioned this last week, they say, you know, you Christians, you know, you say you're not under the law anymore, you're in Christ, whatever. There's all these rules and regulations in Leviticus that you don't live by, but you pick this verse about homosexuality and that's the one you say you can't let go of. And so we're going to look at this one in particular because it serves as a very clear foundation for the teaching of the Apostle Paul that we're going to look at. Um, and also we can try to clarify at least a little bit, hopefully, why of what we're going to look at, it still applies and it doesn't change with the change of a covenant. God's perspective on homosexuality and sexuality and gender, um, it, it's, it's not bound culturally 
to, to the Israelite covenant when it lived in uh, the land of promise. It, it's, it's picking up on something bigger than that that transcends any place and culture and time. When we say transcends, that means it's over, it's beyond, it's not bound to. Um, so if God says something like this is sin here, then that means it's going to stay sin no matter if you go back in time or you go forward in time. It's not like somehow, because as we're going to see, God says it is an abomination God doesn't go from saying something that's an abomination somehow becomes, oh, I love this. This is great. I affirm it now. God would be inconsistent with himself if he did that. So anyway, that's where we're going with this. We got we to gotta deal with a couple of texts in Leviticus because they're important texts. Um, understood rightly, they only reaffirm and undergird everything we're saying. Yeah, that's good. So again, as Greg just said, how many of y'all, uh, or a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard in your life the whole, th- this kind of statement? You Christians are handpicking the verses that you want out of Leviticus. You clearly eat shrimp, which is outlawed in Leviticus. You plant two kinds of seed in the same soil. If you're a farmer, you've probably done that. You wear uh, mixed fiber clothing, right? Not made out of just cotton or just whatever. You wear mixed fiber. All of us in this room right now probably are wearing mixed fiber clothing. That is disobedience to the laws of Leviticus. And so how many of you have heard, you're just, you're just, you're just picking, handpicking which verses you want to obey in Leviticus. You heard that? I think that is a very common objection. It's, it's, it's interesting. People who maybe have, don't know a lot about the Bible, can quote to you verses out of Leviticus from memory on this topic who aren't even Christians. I mean, I, I've seen interviews where, uh, you know, in a college setting, there's a couple hundred college students in a room, and a guy in the back who clearly is not a Christian, he's an atheist, and he was relatively heated at the time because a Christian was speaking about marriage, and he said, don't, and he quoted those verses off the top of his head. I mean, it's just amazing. He knew all the verses right there out of Leviticus 15 to 19, 15 to 20. just quoted them off the top of his head and said, clearly, the only reason you're picking these laws is because you like to eat what you want. You want to eat your pork and your bacon and all that stuff. But over here, you, you allow the, the laws against homosexuality to stand. The real issue is animus. You're, you're just, you have a bigoted desire that deep down is allowing you to pick certain verses and leave other verses out just based on your preferences. And so I think it, we, we owe the world a response to that most basic question. And the book of Acts has obviously dealt a lot with these issues already. So if you've been around, you, you've heard some of these things. Um, maybe I'll just start with this before we read it. That the three big categories that can be helpful, these are worth memorizing, jotting down these three simple words, if you haven't already, moral, civil, and ceremonial law. Those have got to be memorized today because we just need to know those in our mind. Moral, civil, and ceremonial law. And let let me just say something. To an ancient Israelite, all the laws were moral. Not eating shrimp was moral. It was a sin for them to violate that because they were what? They were under the old covenant. And if we today were under the old covenant, then everything in Leviticus we would have to obey chapter and verse. I mean, exactly. We're not here to mock Leviticus. Leviticus was a good thing. Paul says the law is holy, righteous, and good, but uh, we are no longer under the covenant Israel was under, okay? So, we, we are no longer in any way under the old covenant, but there are what we call today moral laws, because we worship the same God Israel did. There are moral laws that overlap in the new covenant that is called the law of Christ, And so, it was a sin morally to lie in the Old Covenant. It is still a sin to lie today. It was a sin to have sex before marriage in the Old Covenant. It is a sin to have sex before marriage today in the New Covenant. It was a sin to not love your neighbor as yourself, which Leviticus actually gives us that statement. Today, it is still a sin to not to fail to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are moral laws, but we are not under the governmental laws, the civil laws. So, real quick, when when you see the death penalty 
And this is not something we make fun of because, again, this is God's holy word. In the Old Covenant, for the people of Israel, if they publicly blasphemed God, if they used God's name as a curse word, they would be put to death. It happens in Leviticus. If they were to uh, construct something on Sabbath just because they want to, they would be put to death. Most sexual misbehaviors would be the death penalty. Those don't apply today. You say, that's, that's good. Well, hang on. Those don't apply today directly. They apply indirectly today because we are no longer under the political government of Israel. The death penalty laws no longer apply directly today, but Paul still quotes a death penalty law in the New Testament for the church. You know how he does it? 1 Corinthians 5, using the words of Leviticus, a man should not have his father's wife, and he says, this person should be rem remove the evil man from among you. That's a quote from the Old Testament law where removing the person from among you used to mean capital punishment, but Paul applies it to church excommunication, removal from church membership today. So, you would be removed from the people of Israel by death. Today, you're removed from the people of God by removal from membership of a church, which is excommunication. So, there's still a connection, but the civil laws, again, are different. Uh, we don't have an army for the church. You know, there's big differences, civil law. We don't have a king. Uh, we have, Jesus is our king take that back. We have a king, but we don't have an earthly king who has political authority. And, and then the other one is the ceremonial laws. We've talked a lot about that with Peter on the roof with Cornelius, right? On Sunday, I talked about that again. You probably heard enough about the ceremonial law. To, you're probably like, I'm good. I've heard a lot about that now. But the point there was these food laws and the sacrificial laws are all fulfilled in Jesus. We are made clean by faith. Remember on Sunday, the, the Gentiles were cleansed in their heart by faith in Jesus. He's the clean one who takes our impurities. And now in the New Testament, the, the language of impurity or uncleanness is still used, but it's only used morally. Mark 7, what comes out from you is the uncleanness from within you, sexual morality, adultery. Uh, Paul will use the same words of uncleanness. So, the New Testament takes the purity language and applies it to morality, moral issues today, not to the food, the kosher food laws back then. So, the three words again, can you say them with me? Moral, civil, ceremonial. We are not picking and choosing laws in the Old Testament. Jesus did the picking and choosing for us when He abolished the ceremonial laws, took us away from the civil laws, but kept the moral laws under the law of Christ. God did the picking and choosing. Yes, there's picking and choosing, but God did it through, the, through redemptive history. We are no longer under the old covenant. We are under a new covenant called the new covenant under the blood of Christ, and we are under the, the law of Christ, not that so. In Leviticus, you will see moral civil ceremonial laws sometimes in the same verse, all piled on top of each other, and we've got to be careful to dissect and figure out which is which so we know that we're, we're doing the right thing with what we, with what we have. So, let's look here at, at Leviticus 18. This can be a little uncomfortable to read these out loud. Are you all ready for this? Where do we start? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm just going to kind of go for a little bit here, so just, just hang with me here. I apologize. Well, I'm not going to apologize. It's the Bible, but just let, 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 our, let our Victorian English sensibilities here, let, let them kind of influence. This is God's Word. Verse 6, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. The actual phrase Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5.1, a man has his father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family since she is your sister, etc. Look at verse 19. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. 
You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal so as to make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it, it is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these things the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who does them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge, never practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so again, like I said earlier, to say that somehow God changed his mind, you, you have to go completely against the grain of what Scripture is saying here. Um, you think about you know, Israel coming into the land. God made a promise that this was the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, but there's another aspect to Israel going into the land of Canaan that we often miss. And it's Israel was God's agent of judgment on the nations that lived there because they had persisted for hundreds of years in these practices that we just read about that make us uncomfortable. That was normal for them for hundreds of years. Back when God made his promise to Abraham, he said, your descendants will come back in one of the what's particular generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God was bearing with these nations for hundreds of years and they would not turn from their sin. They only embraced it more. They did all these things that, that Moses just wrote, you shall not do. They did that repeatedly, generation after generation after generation. And finally a point came when God said, I'm going to judge you and I'm going to wipe you out. And in God's providence, that's when Israel came in, God gave the land that he was judging to another people. Um, but one of the main things we need to remember, Israel was God's agent of judgment on these. And what did God threaten Israel with? He said, if you do this, we'll see this in Leviticus mm -hmm. 20 um, and in, in other places. I've been, we've been reading through Deuteronomy in our Bible reading. Um, if Israel walks in these very practices, does these things, God says, what's going to happen? I'm going to bring a nation that you don't know, and they're going to take you, they're going to uh, defeat you in battle. They're going to uh, kill a lot of your people, and they're going to cart you off in exile. So it's not like somehow this was only true for them. Um, God says these practices, a male lying with a male, one of many that God names, they are abominations. And he says, verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things for by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. Um, so what was an abomination in God's sight then remains an abomination in God's sight. And that's not trying to be mean. That's not trying to be harsh. That's just being biblical. Those are God's words. And, you know, we, we joke about we don't want to apologize, but we really need to work hard not to be ashamed of what the Bible says. Like, we really need to work hard on that because we, it, it's very easy to almost be like, man, I'm, I'm offended by this as a Christian. I can't believe God would say, do we, God doesn't make mistakes. God said this is what it is because it violates. You remember we talked about last week, God's design and creation, Genesis 1 and 2, what, what is good for humanity, what is good for society, male, female, only in marriage, covenanted together 
everything outside of that is sin. Everything outside of that leads to disruption and eventual chaos. The, the more you get rid of God's basic societal unit, which is the family, the more you destroy that, the more you destroy society's foundation for truly flourishing. It's just how it works. It always goes that way. That's why we see in our society today such a push against the family um, is because if that's destroyed, all the things we're reading about that we shouldn't do suddenly become okay. And I mean, we, you, you think about, you know, there was the, the slippery slope argument um, when, you know, before Obergefell and all those things. It's like, look, once homeless, homosexual, homosexuality is normalized, then, um, you know, that's going to lead to other things being okay. Once you destroy the basic definition of marriage, anything's going to, oh, no, it won't be that way. It won't be that way. Now, pedophilia has gone from being um, something that, that we should rightly be abhorred at. Well, it's just a mental condition. Um, it, it's a con- it's, it's, you have cross-generational intimacy. That, and there's like, you know, you've got same-sex attraction. You've got like, there's a, a phrase for like, for men who are attracted to young boys. Like, and there, it's, it's more of an attraction, an orientation. And like exactly what we said was going to happen is actually starting to happen because once you destroy marriage in and of itself, anything goes. And the whole point of all that is simply to say, what God says is sin is sin, and we ought not to be ashamed of that just because our culture um, hates it. So let's not, apo- let's not be ashamed for believing what the Bible says. Let's and not be ashamed. An important point here, because some people will bring this up to try to undermine what we're saying here. There is only, to my knowledge, one sexual prohibition in these lists that is actually under the ceremonial law. And you may have noticed it when we read it. It's in verse 19. So, talking about a husband and a wife, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. Not, I'm not going to apologize for what the Bible says. <laughs> so, uh, j- just, we got to talk about this because here it is in the text. The, I, I, we won't go through the whole explanation about clean and unclean things, but these things were oftentimes things that were symbolically or in some way connected with things that symbolize life and death. The idea was God is holy, He represents pure life, and that's why what is ceremonially representative of death cannot get near God's presence. That's why the dead animals, must, after their sacrifice, need to be taken outside the camp and burned. This is why the, 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 the refuse of the animals needs to be taken outside and burned. This is why someone who's ceremonially unclean, which means they've touched a dead animal, they've, they've come into contact with a bodily fluid that in some way is symbolic of death, anything like that, a person is not supposed to go into the presence of God in a state of uncleanness because it's representative of bringing death into the the presence of life. You see, it's a picture of those things. So, uh, this here is not condemning a husband-wife relationship categorically. It's saying if a husband and wife are married, uh, there are times where in the Old Covenant, because of ceremonial uncleanness, a husband was not to approach his wife. Okay, that's what it says. That particular uh, part is ceremonial law. That particular aspect connects back to ceremonial law. But you notice here, all these other things are condemning the relationship entirely. A man should not sleep with another man's wife. A man should not sleep with another man as with a woman. A man should not sleep you know, with an animal, all these things. Those are categorical denunciations of any form of those things. But in this one, husbands and wives are normally blessed in their union, but there are times under ceremonial law in the Old Covenant when they were not to be, when they were not to be intimate. So that is one tiny piece of ceremonial law that, that is there. But once you see that and you can make sense out of that, the rest of this is clearly moral law, uh, unless you want to just take the brakes off and read this chapter as if, oh, this, is all, this all goes today. What does the New Testament say about this list? It is crystal clear what, what the New Testament will say. Let's turn to chapter 20. Two chapters there to the right. Chapter 20. Verse 13. 
Yes, and I'll read just a few verses before it just so you get the same kind of idea here. Verse 10 of, uh, of Leviticus 20, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them, etc. Now, just this is something that I found interesting in, in Robert Gagnon's big book on uh, the Bible and homosexual practice. Uh, he points out something I did not know just to have, make sure I get the numbers right on my phone here. The book of Leviticus uses the word abomination six times. Okay, the Hebrew word abomination is used six times in the whole book of Leviticus. In chapter 18, it's used one, two, three, four, five times, and then once in chapter 20. This is something I just had never heard. The word, the plural, abominations, referring to the list of sexual sins in chapter 18, all those acts are called in the plural. At the end of the list, it says, these are all the abominations, plural, that the Canaanites committed, okay? But something I just never knew, the word abomination singular to describe a single sin is only used in all of Leviticus to describe same-sex sexual relationships. That, just didn't know that. The only sin that is individually called an abomination in the entire book of Leviticus, and it's called it twice is same-sex same relationships. Both in 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination singular. And 2013, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination singular. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. That's pretty interesting, I thought. That, 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 is, the, that is a sin that particularly is singled out as a, as a particularly abominable thing. So, again, there is forgiveness and grace for people who have done that. There is lots of forgiveness and grace for people who've done anything on these lists if they will turn from those things and repent. But the idea that God whispers, and this is something that <laughs> we have to mention, our, our last SBC president, J.D. Greer, said in a sermon, famous, pretty famous clip on Romans chapter 1, God, talking about homosexuality, J.D. Greer said to his large church up there in North Carolina, he said, God whispers about sexual sin in the Bible, but He shouts about greed and self-righteousness. Well, I'll talk about that in a second. Our new SBC president, who was just elected a couple you know, week ago, he said the same thing in a sermon he preached in his church. God whispers about sexual sin. He was also talking about these things. God whispers about sexual sin, but he shouts about greed and self-righteousness. Well, there's no question God shouts about self-righteousness. The self-righteous people had Jesus murdered. There's no question the Bible is as strongly opposed to religious self-righteousness as anything. But the idea that God whispers about sexual sin, let's just play that out for a second. The God of the Bible whispers about rape. The God of the Bible whispers about incest. The God of the Bible whispers about premarital sex and extramarital affairs. The God of the Bible whispers about pornography. The God of the Bible whispers about lust. The God of the Bible whispers about bestiality, which is here in this list. Do you think God thinks sexual abuse and those kinds of things are just something to whisper about and greed is the real issue? I think any honest reading of the Bible would say, when Sodom and Gomorrah saw fire and sulfur coming down out of heaven, I don't think anybody thought God was whispering at that moment about sexual sin. I, I don't know how else to say that. I, I, and by the way, as, as you mentioned the other week, the Trinity, there was a Trinity involved in that particular moment, and Jesus was part of that Trinity. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were in complete agreement, because it's one God, 
They were in complete agreement with the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah for many sins. Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of many sins, but it is crystal clear that sexual immorality, including the sin of homosexuality and rape and other things like that, inhospitality and, other, and, and exploitation of the poor, but it, that is certainly one of the sins that, that is included among them. And the idea that God whispers about that is, can, can I just be very blunt? You know, people say, you can't judge the heart, but I think I can come pretty close on this one. The only reason any large-named evangelical today would look in the camera to his megachurch and say what is going to be plastered across the internet that God whispers about homosexuality is because they fear what the culture will do to them if they say what the Bible actually says. I don't know what other motive there would be for saying that. God whispers about sexual sin. There is no whispering in the Bible. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to lust, gouge it out because it is better for you to go to heaven with one eye missing than with both eyes to be cast into the eternal fire. Jesus did not whisper about sexual immorality, and neither does anybody in the Trinity or in Scripture. So, let, let us be so careful. In an act, in a desire to be loving to people who have been refugees and hurt and, and, and sinned and, and are coming out of the, the, the homosexual community and the transgender community, we want to love them and provide a gospel for them. But the way we love them is not by muting what God says. The way we love them is by being calm and clear about what the Bible says and offering a gospel of complete forgiveness if we will turn and to trust in Christ. Th that, that's, that's the answer. Yeah, I think um, in terms of people coming out of that, like we do need um, to be sensitive to the fact that for generations, and I mean, the, the impulse in this to, um, to be repulsed by certain types of sins is a good impulse. Um, and so there's no no rebuke or anything like that. But, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm from South Georgia, and I know how folks from South Georgia thought about people who were gay. I heard how they talked about them. I knew what would happen if they found out they were, if somebody was gay. They'd get mocked. They'd get made fun of. They'd be treated very harshly, um, sometimes just beat up uh, for the simple fact that they were that way. And that's, in and, and saying that, that's not a defense of their lifestyle or of their choices. Um, but, when we think of winning people to Christ, we have to keep in mind that's some of the cultural baggage. Um, I cannot remember the guy, um, the young man who was drugged to death behind a truck simply because he was gay. I think it was in Alabama a number of years ago. Um, a lot of the homosexual community, transgender community, that's what they're going to latch onto. And they're going to say, if you're saying that I'm wrong, they're picturing you as the type of people who want to call them horrible names and do that kind of stuff to them. And we've got to be willing to be, as you said, calm. We've got to be very patient to show, yeah, your sin is abominable in the sight of God. But as a human being, I'm still going to respect you and treat you with respect. And the, the biggest way I can do that is not by calling you names or by, by being mean to you. It's by preaching the truth to you. Okay? But we have to keep in mind that that's the baggage that comes with this, is if you disagree with them, it's, it's no longer you just have a different opinion. Your disagreement is, has been turned into violence itself. And so we have to, to be very patient um, in conversations and in relationships to show and demonstrate uh, repeatedly that the loving thing for us to do is speaking the truth, but that doesn't mean that, that I'm going to hate you as an individual. I'm going to wish harm on your body or try to do you know wicked things to you. We've got to be, we've got to, We've got to make the right divide here that, yes, this is what the truth is, but I'm speaking this truth and I'm going to persuade you if I'm able by God's grace to repent of your sin, but I'm not going to pick up a bat. I'm not going to, 
you know, threaten you uh, with physical harm because I, I hate your lifestyle. You see, you see the difference there? Like, I think we, we have to keep that in mind because there has been some, some, some awful mistreatment of people simply because of this issue. And again, it's not really simple, but it's like, that's what's happened. And so that has been projected onto everyone who disagrees with homosexuality. And it's not a true projection. It's not true. Like, I, if I meet somebody and have the opportunity to get to know somebody of, of, of a homosexual lifestyle, you know, I'm going to do my best to respect them, to love them, to get to know them, to, to learn their story, um, you know, because they're human beings made in the image of God. And I think we, we, we have to labor, unfortunately, um, we got to do like a, a pre-evangelism in a sense to labor to show that we value you as a human being. We don't, uh, we don't devalue you because of this. Yes, this is of, of serious concern because if you don't repent, you go to hell. It's like if you don't repent of other sins, you go to hell. So it's a big deal in that sense, but we've got to labor to show, I respect you as a person. I value you as a human being um, because again, the projection is us horrible, oppressive Christians, we don't value them as people. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. But we've got to work hard. And sometimes it takes a while to undo the false projection on us um, as being just hateful bigots. When in reality, the most loving thing we can do is love them as people while speaking the truth to them continually. Yeah, t two words that I've heard people use that can be helpful here is the word prophets and refugees. Here's what this means. With the sexual revolution, you will have some people who are arguing passionately in society for these things. And they are more like prophets for the sexual revolution. Does that make sense? They're, they're, they're publicly, persuasively trying to argue that people believe this, prophets. And then you have refugees. You know what a refugee is? Someone who's running away from trouble. So imagine the woman at the well would be a refugee from, uh, from sexual morality, right? She, here she is, broken by her sin. Jesus talks to her. Is there anybody Jesus is more compassionate towards, more kind toward than this, this woman who's had five husbands? She's now living with a man she's not married to. Jesus offers her living water. He's kind to her. She receives the gospel. She, Jesus tells her he's the Christ. Jesus rarely tells people that directly, that he, I, the one whom you are speaking with is he. Jesus loves her. It's that beautiful picture. She's a refugee. She, she's one that's been broken and hurt by the, her sexual past, and she is ready for the gospel. And he just gives it. Now, he still mentions her past. He doesn't ignore it. He brings it up, and it even makes her a little uncomfortable. Remember, she changes the subject. As long as we're talking about my serial adultery, let's ask which temple we should worship in. Remember that little beautiful little moment? And Jesus follows her on the rabbit trail and brings it back to worship, and he, he saves her right there. So that, that would be a refugee. A prophet would be someone, like a college professor, somebody like this, who is, who's a spokesperson for these ideologies. And I would say the way I would interact with these two people would be radically different. Mm -hmm. Right now, we're kind of talking to the prophets, right? I mean, we're addressing an ideology of the sexual revolution worldview, and we want to, like Paul says, we, we, want to, we want to break down strongholds and anything that will hold itself against the knowledge of Christ. We want to take every thought captive. We want to, you know, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, we want to knock these things down. So there's going to be a, a kind of intensity when we're dealing with the prophets of these things. These, these, these ideologies are beyond harmful. They're, they're, they're corruptive. They're corrosive. They're horrible. But when I'm talking to a 21-year-old who is struggling with same-sex attraction, and they're coming to talk to me, or they're struggling with this, or they have a friend who is, the way I talk to them is going to sound, I think, unrecognizably different from how I'm talking sometimes right now about these things. I'm going to say the same truths, but the issue here is it's a different situation. So when someone is hurt and coming out and fleeing, we offer them grace. When someone is pronouncing this ideology, we need to deal with it more uh, in, in, a, in a loving but, but counteracting sort of way in, in terms of their, their belief system.
Yeah. Um, another thing we're going to face, and we need to look, we need, while we still have time, we need to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Yes. Because this is a contested text. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll look at verses 9 through um, 11. Um, you know, again, one of, one of the things that's interesting um, in, in this debate is how some people, you know, Satan is the, the, a liar, the father of lies. He even twisted scripture when he was tempting Jesus. And so it's not as though um, the opponents of the truth are ignorant of the truth. Sometimes they know portions of the Bible. They know the right places to go in order to try to throw people off. Um, and so one, one line of reasoning that is used is that, well, the New Testament doesn't specifically deal with homosexuality as we're talking about it. It deals with it. Well, it's really talking about what pederasty or something in the Roman world that's just dealing with, you know, men, um, you know, having relationships with boys or something like that. And so one of the, the biggest terms um, in this is in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. Um, and we'll point it out. So let's read that. Paul says, or do you not know, and pay, pay careful attention to his language here, okay? It's unmistakable. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So who, whatever falls or whoever falls into the category of unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. That means they're not saved. They're not going to heaven when they die, okay? That's, that's the significance of this. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, it's interesting. Um, I love the ESV. It's my favorite translation. Um, but in this, the, the actual translation itself doesn't quite, and, and again, it's hard to get this into English, but I think we should try. It says in verse 9, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, if you've got your ESV or, or a Bible that's got any kind of notes, it might have a note down there at the bottom that says the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active par partners in consensual homosexual acts. There are two different words being used here, okay? Um, the first one is probably the most controversial. It's arkinosoitai. I think I said that right. It's, it's a tough word, um, but it actually is a combination. Paul actually invents a word here. Um, he takes the concepts from Leviticus that we already looked at. Um, and I think it's in Leviticus 18, um, arson and coite, um, which means to, um, man and to bed, which means to have sexual relationship with. Um, and he combines those two in a word to refer to the active male partner. Um, and the other one, um, is malakos, which refers to the more passive partner. And again, that might be more than you want to know, but that's what Paul's talking about. And there's a word for pederastry, which was men and boys, which Paul could have used, and he doesn't use that. Okay, He just doesn't use that word. It's not like Paul didn't know about it, and well, he, he was looking at the concept, oh, that's what I mean by it. No, Paul refers to both partners in a, in a, in a consensual homosexual thing as sinful. Okay? And, and he, he's as broad and as general as he can be in the terms he used to encompass all of it. He's not going for a specific type of homosexuality. He's categorically rejecting all homosexuality. 
He got it from Leviticus. Remember, Paul was what? He was a Pharisee before he became a Christian. He knew his Old Testament well. He was, as he said, advancing far beyond his, his fellow countrymen. He was the cream of the crop. He, you know, he studied at the, the, under, at the feet of the greatest teacher, Gamaliel. Um, Paul was the up-and-coming guy. So he knew his Old Testament very, very well. Okay, And so steeped in that Old Testament mindset, keep in, light, keep in mind everything we've talked about, Paul is here saying, listen, homosexuality, unrepented of, will keep you out of the kingdom of God, just like all these other sins um, that Paul mentions here. Can I, can I yeah, just, go ahead. On that point, just uh, real quick. So Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Remember, before Jesus was born, it was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it normally quotes the Greek translation, the Septuagint. Now, just listen. So, the, the Greek word that Paul uses here are synechoites, okay? That's the word. Listen to the Greek of Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Meta arsenos, u koimethese, koitin, gunakas. The two words, arsenos and koitin, to go to bed with a man. Our, Paul took those two words from Leviticus 18.22, arsenos, koites, put them together and made the word arsenokoites. It's out of Leviticus. And the other verse, Leviticus 20, verse 13, has the words arsenos koitain in them as well. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. So Paul literally just takes the Greek word arsenos and koites, taking a man to bed. He puts them together, forms a new Greek word, arsenokoites, and that's the word he's using. People who say he's not relying on Leviticus, I mean, I could, if you're curious, come look at how similar these two verses look. I mean, it's, it's, there's no doubt about it. Paul is looking back to the Levitical sexual ethics. He's drawing the language out of the Greek Old Testament, and there it is. In, and he uses that word both in 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Timothy chapter, chapter uh, 1. So, I, really clear on that one. I, I just don't think people's <clears throat> attempts to get around that work at all. Well, and then we need to, so I think that's clear. It's sinful, okay? It's sinful. Um, it's a sin that needs to be repented of. Let's look at verse 11, because I think we have a little bit of time to get to do this. Um, he says again, and such were some of you. And that, that is so key, meaning some of the people that he was writing to used to be sexually immoral. They were idolaters. Some of them were adulterers. Some of them were homosexual and thieves and so on and so forth. He says such were some of you, but something changed. They became believers. As Paul says, they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of, our, of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And so a change happened. Change is actually possible. Um, no sin is so bad that you can't come out of it. No sin is so bad that God can't save you out of it. Let's put it that way. Okay. And why this matters is when you become a believer Whatever sins were kind of your primary identifier, they're no longer your identifier. Jesus is. You are a Christian. There's no qualifiers or prefixes to Christian. Okay? Like I'm a greedy Christian or I'm a selfish Christian. Or, or an adulterous Christian right. or a murderous Christian. Like, or a gay Christian. Or a gay Christian. Y'all have heard that term. Um, and the reason this matters is when it comes to homosexuality in the Bible and, and you know, the the, the two, there's two camps in this. One is called side A, which refers to people who say the Bible actually affirms homosexuality and endorses it as something good in God's sight as a legitimate option. Um, the other is called side B, which says, yes, homosexual activity is sinful, but, but same-sex orientation or uh, being identified as gay is okay because that can be sanctified. 
Okay, that's called side B. Um, and they, I, I, they really don't deal with this verse, but the reason it matters, you might have heard of a conference called Revoice that was out there a few years ago. It's kind of an ongoing thing now. And the whole point of that conference, it made waves. Um, it was, there were some Presbyterians involved. There was um, Southern Baptists and others involved. Um, Did you know the guy really? Nate Collins. Yeah, I knew, knew him when started? we were in seminary. Um, and it's very sad to see the direction he's mm. gone on this. Um, but yeah, so Revoice sought to legitimize gay Christianity, meaning, and, and, and this, is, this is good that they do this, they reject homosexual activity as sinful, but not necessarily the desire for people of the same sex. They sanctify that, saying you can be attracted to someone of the same biological sex as you um, in ways that go beyond mere friendship but short of sexual but short activity. of sexual, everything up to that, pretty much. To the point where they say you can have a same-sex partnership that is celibate. You can even have a special ceremony where you're partnered together um, as brothers or something like that. You sit on the couch, you watch movies, you cuddle, you kiss each other goodbye, but you don't actually engage in sexual activity. Not all will go that far, but that is basically what it is. There is a, a type of Christianity called gay Christianity. And they even go so far as to go back into Genesis. I've heard Collins do this and say that God intended for men um, and, and women, but he, they specifically focus on men, to, to have these special close relationships that go beyond mere friendship. That men were made, to were made to desire other people outside of our spouse in strong, intimate ways short of the sexual relationship. And ju just jumping in here, people will oftentimes hijack the David and Jonathan friendship. Yes. Have you heard this? So people will oftentimes argue that David and Jonathan had a sexual relationship. Now, just people only say that because they're alive today. Nobody in church history is reading that story thinking that's what's going on. David and Jonathan, there's a, there's a line where they say, you know, your love surpasses that of the love of women. Uh, part of this may have been the polygamy side, but I don't know. But like, basically, they had this incredibly strong uh, friendship, and, they, and Jonathan was willing to give up all his rights to the throne and give it to David in, in submission to God's will, and they protected each other and loved each other. There is not a hint in the biblical record of anything uh, erotic or homosexual between them. Uh, and so, people who bring that up, I, I really think that's a distraction, really. That, that, there is absolutely legitimate male friendships are 100% wonderful in Scripture. What, what, what's taught, what you're talking about in Revoice is something completely yep. different from what the Jonathan David friendship was in, in, yes. in First Second Samuel. And they actually, um, one article I was looking at, they actually try to make a um, a distinction between romantic love and erotic love. Like they they separate that you can be romantically attracted to somebody of the same sex and not be in sin. And the problem is that one of the problems is. They, they've divorced desire from, from action in the sense that the action itself is sinful, but the desire is not necessarily so. And one of the things you've already quoted, Jesus talked about, if you have a desire for something that you shouldn't have a desire for, you need to do battle against that desire. The desire itself is sinful. Temptation isn't sinful, but the desire that you're tempted with is sinful. Um, and that's, that was the problem with the Pharisees. They're squeaky clean on the outside, but they were full of evil desires inside. And so any movement that legitimizes desires that go contrary to nature is 
suspect and corrupt. Let me jump in here. So, a question that will come up sometimes is, you know, can people be born gay? Someone might say, listen, I, since I was five years old, I've heard one woman said that she was attracted to other women on the playground when she was five, and that turned into lesbianism later in her teenage years, and then she later became a Christian, and now she's married, she has children. But what about the question, I didn't choose this lifestyle? I think that's an important question. Okay. What we've got to remember is this, because I've heard Christians react in all different ways. The first thing I want to say is this. We are not born the way Adam and Eve were made without sin. We are born dead in sin, which means we're born this way in terms of all kinds of stuff. In other words, if, if by born this way you mean I have corrupt desires that make me want to be selfish, prideful, sexually immoral, to be greedy, to be an idolater, well, welcome to humanity. I mean, everybody's born this way in the sense that we're all born with corrupt, a corrupt nature that is inclined towards evil and loves evil and loves the darkness rather than the light. So, some people will be more naturally inclined to alcoholism than other people. Some people will have a greater issue wrestling their temper into control than other people. Some people will have a greater issue with, uh, with, with uh, heterosexual sexual lust, and others, with, others will be more tempted towards homosexuality than, than some. So, you know, some people will live their whole life, never have a moment of homosexual temptation. Others will struggle with homosexual temptation perhaps until the day they die. Now, here's the issue. Because I'm born with an impulse does not justify acting on that impulse. Can you imagine what the world would look like if we just, well, I just, I was born selfish, so give me the toy. I mean, what would happen? Well, I guess that's kind of what happens anyway. But uh, what, what happens is you, you, you can't just act on an impulse because it's there from birth. We are born dead in sin. We need a, we need a doctrine of not just creation, but total depravity and the, the, fall, the original sin so that we don't just validate whatever impulse we have. Like Jerry will say, our heart is deceitful. Well, really, Jeremiah said that, Jerry. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet. Uh, our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So, some people will be more tempted towards homosexual behavior than others throughout their life. We don't always, I'm quoting somebody else, we don't always choose our temptations, but we always choose our response. Mm -hmm. I think that is a very wise statement. We don't always choose our temptations, but we always choose our response. And just because I have an impulse of temptation, I cannot identify myself by that sin and then validate myself living that way. I can't say, well, I'm you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm a selfish Christian, and I really want what you've got, and just snatch it from you. That's not the way this works. So, we, we, we want to be very careful. The world will call, real quick, the world will call someone who struggles with same-sex attraction and resists it and fights it by God's grace, the world will call that person gay, and they will call a person who lives the, the lifestyle gay. That's the problem with language. One word is being used to describe two radically different situations. A person can be someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, just like you might struggle with alcoholism or whatever, someone can struggle with that desire, put it to death by the Spirit repeatedly, walk in a repentant lifestyle, not feed it, not live in it, and be a genuine born-again Christian. Someone over here who says, I've got this impulse, I think it's who I am, I want to act it out, I want to live this way, I've got a boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk it out and live that way, and I'm going to be active in that way, that person is unrepentant and therefore not a believer in Jesus because they're not repentant. But the world will call both the word gay, and that, that is unhelpful. We need to be very careful with our language. What do you mean by gay? Do you mean someone who has the temptation but is fighting it, or do you mean someone who has the temptation and is not resisting it but indulging it? Those are very different things, and you can apply any sin. Name any sin. Put it in those categories, and you, you can see the same thing. Our, the question in the Bible is not, are we tempted? It's, are we repentant, or are we indulging those without repentance? Yeah. Amen. Okay, almost done. 60 seconds maybe. Let's just read the last section of, of 1 Corinthians 6. We'll end where we began the other week. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, I'm going to read verses 9 to the end of the chapter. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. It's just appetites. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Let's pray together. Lord, all of us are hearing every day through every form of social media and news media and TV and commercials and movies and Netflix and everything, shows, jokes. We're just hearing all day long that basically you don't exist and that we are just here on our own and that the ultimate purpose in life is to look within and to find the sexual desires that we want to express and to live them out and to even make them our very identity, naming ourselves by our sexual desire and to be fulfilled in that and to find freedom in that and to find happiness in that. And Lord, there is just a world that is full of lies. The prince of the power of the air is at work in the sons of disobedience. And there are, there are godless belief systems just everywhere around us. And even we as Christians begin at times to believe bits and pieces of these things. Lord, help us to get clarity of thought to see, no, 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 I am not my own. I was bought with a price, and therefore my body and my soul are owed to Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe, I owe Him everything, and help, help us to give our life like a living sacrifice back to You. Give us the grace to resist any kind of sexual temptation, no matter what it is. Help us to fight it. God, help us to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to look to You and to Your law and to conform ourselves, to be transformed to Your will, that we would find true freedom, true joy, true fulfillment, true happiness, because we are designed to live the way You have commanded us to live. And Lord, for some who may be listening who might feel like they're giving up everything to repent and follow You, remind all of us, God, that we all have to give up everything. Anyone who would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it. Any of you who does not take up his cross daily and follow me cannot be my disciple. Lord, it is not just those who struggle with same-sex attraction who have to give up a lot in their conversion. 
It is all of us who love our sin from birth, who have to give up our past life and to die to the old self and be crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. God, help us to turn from our sin, our flesh, self-righteousness, whatever we may struggle with, to release those things and to turn to You in repentance and faith. And help us to find the freedom and joy that only You can give us. Show us how much better Your will is for us than whatever the world can come up with uh, right now. And God, I pray we would live a life that is so different, so countercultural, so attractive to the world, so confusing at times to the world that people would be brought in and that they would see a countercultural way of living and doing sexuality and marriage in a different way, and that they would see it as better and superior and wonderful, and that people would be won to Christ by the corporate example of this church in this city. And I pray you would use us for your glory, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One more thing here. If you are interested in a relatively brief 150-page book on the topic, you probably can't do a lot better than Kevin DeYoung's book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? First half of the book, he deals with all the critical passages. Second half, he answers a lot of common questions and objections. And uh, starting next week, Lord willing, we'll be working through the book of 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter before his death in the Roman prison. If you think, is the Second Timothy going to have anything to do with these things? Well, maybe less directly, but we're going to be looking at, at uh, Scripture and true Christianity in an age of, of really what he's dealing with is false teaching and, and, and forms of apostasy. So I still think there will be a lot of relevant connections as we continue to move forward. So thank you guys very much.